Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. Today's episode is part of our series focused on food allergy, and we'll be discussing today peanut allergy. We welcome Dr. Wesley Burks, who is an expert in uh, peanut allergy. He is the executive dean of our School of Medicine, and in his research and clinical world, he has been a pediatric allergist and immunologist and has really seen people with food allergies. So we're really excited that he is here today. Welcome, Wesley Burks. Thank you, Dr. Falk. It's nice to be here. There's a lot of discussion about peanut allergy, and uh, we're learning more and more about it. Many of our listeners have a relative or friend who has this allergy. So is peanut allergy really becoming more common, or is it something that it's always been there and we're just identifying it? So it's been interesting to look at the last four decades of allergy, allergic diseases in general, asthma, allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis, and food allergy because they're all related. What we've seen in food allergy is a tripling in the last two decades of the disease. Peanut allergy parallels that. It's actually the third most common allergy as far as foods in the U.S., with milk being the most common and egg second. The aura that you hear in the public about peanut allergy is because that's often the one that is associated with uh, life-threatening or life-ending disease, but it's not the most common food allergy that we see. If we compare to the 1980s, again, the prevalence is significantly different with the same way to diagnose them doing a food challenge to prove that you are allergic. So there is a real difference. Why? What's triggered this? So if you look at, um, I'll digress just a second. If you, if you go to a lecture about diabetes or autoimmune diseases, or allergic diseases, that the people presenting those diseases, their first five or six slides are the same. That they talk about the environment, they talk about the change in the microbiome, they talk about diesel particle exhaust, change in other behaviors that we see in the industrialized Western society. All those diseases, what I think of as the immune-related diseases, really have seen changes in the last several decades that we don't see in the non-industrialized societies. And food allergy is just one of those that you see much more common now than you would have several decades ago. So there is this hypothesis, uh, roughly termed the hygiene hypothesis, that would suggest that, in fact, uh, we should be exposed as infants Mm -hmm. to dirt, to the environment, and that the rise in all of these allergic moments is, is because we have avoided uh, our environment and a dirty environment when we were kids. Right. That hypothesis was really put forth in the late 1980s. There's some really good studies in Eastern Europe from late 1990s, early 2000, in East Germany, taking families that had grown up on a farm. And you have to really dissect out what the differences are, but basically... The families that had kids that grew up in a farmhouse with a cow literally in the kitchen exposed to endotoxin and other bacterial contaminants really do have a different prevalence of disease. Much less. Much less. How that relates, though, to what we might see here in the inner city that's really not a clean environment, but it's really different than a cow in the kitchen in East Germany. We don't see that same decreased prevalence in like the uh, inner city here that might be a comparator. So it's not just cleanliness. It's specific things that are introduced early in life that really change our immune system. And the 
hygiene hypothesis is part of what I alluded to earlier, the changing microbiome, diesel particle exhaust, all those things play a part. I don't think there is one reason. I think it's a combination of them that's still ongoing. So everybody should take their kids, move to a farm, and and roll around in the dirt for a that while. That sounds pretty good. Sounds to me. pretty good. Too. Right. That's right. So if you are concentrating on peanut allergy in specific, are there specific risk factors that separate out those people who have peanut allergy from milk allergy, for not, example? Not really. The risk for allergic disease is inherited asthma, allergic rhinitis, food allergy, atopic dermatitis together. So if you have a parent that has one of those diseases, the child has about a 40% chance of having one of those diseases. Mother has asthma, the child might have allergic rhinitis. If you have both parents or a parent and a sibling, it goes up to about 60% plus. And again, the child or the parent might have asthma and then the child might have food allergy. So it's allergic disease to allergic disease. That's the biggest risk. The only slight risk for peanut allergy is is another family member already has it, and then a new child is born. It's a slight increase, but most of the inheritance is allergic disease to allergic disease. So if you're a parent, let me just refresh this idea. If you're a parent who has asthma or allergic rhinitis, let alone both, your kid has a much higher chance of having any food allergy. Or any of the allergic diseases. Any of the, any of the allergic flu- diseases, including food including allergy, food yes. Allergy. There are a number of efforts to try to decrease the possibility of your child having a reaction to, to a peanut or to milk or to any of these other agents. And there has been a lot of work, which you are doing much of, of immunotherapy or if it's not immunotherapy, uh, tolerance to, to the food particle. Can you tell us about that? So what a, a family that has a child that has peanut allergy specifically, what they live in fear of is that their child will accidentally ingest peanuts at home in a contaminated food when they go out to eat at the grandparent's house and have a life-threatening reaction. The chances of that happening are relatively small, but they're unpredictable. So what a family wants is some protection from an accidental significant reaction. So that's the background. The studies are done with types of allergy immune therapy. Immunotherapy has been done for over a decade for allergic rhinitis and asthma, for airborne allergens like grass and tree pollen. And basically the concept is to give that person back what they're allergic to in increasingly larger amounts over time to change their immune system. Allergy shots. Right. So those are the injections that people get. You grew up with kids that did that. The The concept of allergy immune therapy then we took to foods to give them back the food that they're allergic to to try to raise their tolerance level. So as an example, most children that are allergic to peanuts, they'll have their clinical reaction to about a third of a peanut, so not very much. If you do a type of immune therapy and they can tolerate it, whether it's oral or sublingual or epicutaneous, at six months, 12 months into that, they'll tolerate somewhere between five and 20 peanuts before they have a reaction. So their tolerance level goes up, but only while they're on the therapy. Why can't you do a peanut allergy shot? Why does it have to be oral? So if you look at allergic disease in general, the most likely way that you'll cause somebody to have a really bad reaction is by giving something to IV. And then 
IM injection, intramuscular injection, is the next easiest way to cause anaphylaxis or a life-threatening allergic reaction. The least likely way that you can do that is to give something orally. So we were trying to take the safest way that you could give peanut back to the patient to cause the changes in the immune system. People have actually tried injection with peanut immunotherapy. There were studies in the early 1990s, and there was a patient that died from it. Okay. And so they stopped that for decades now. There's a resurgence of that with a modified peanut to try to do that. But just in general, whether it's a drug or a food, then anytime you give something intramuscularly or IV, you increase your chances of having a really bad reaction significantly. And so what you're doing now is literally grinding up peanut and putting it between the cheek and gum? (laughs) No, we actually buy a peanut powder from a candy company, a national international peanut company and the powder has protein plus some other things in it and we weigh it out and give that in a cup to a patient they take that powder and mix with food and that's the drug the dose that they take that day and do they drink it or do they they put it in a food they put it so they put it in applesauce or ice cream or something soft and then they mix it up and then they just eat the food so they'll take two tablespoons of food and put the powder in it and then eat that the powder the amount that we weigh out and the regulations for it are not different than you might expect for a drug because we're giving them something to change their immune system. So the regulatory hurdles that we face as far as how to give that peanut product to them, we just don't buy it off the shelf and give it to them. We have to make sure it doesn't have bacterial contamination. We have to make sure it has all the peanut proteins in it, all the things that you might if you're even like you're giving somebody a drug like amoxicillin. So it's the same process. It just happens to be a food. And how successful is it? For There's different types of immunotherapy. There's oral, there's sublingual, which is a liquid concentrated peanut, and then there's a company that has an epicutaneous one, which is a patch. The main ones that we're studying here are oral and sublingual. The oral, about 15% of children cannot tolerate it because they have such significant GI symptoms in the first few weeks when they start it. If they're in the 80 plus percent that tolerate it, most all of them will get to that tolerance level changing within six months quite easily. The sublingual is to take peanut and dissolve it in a liquid. And that liquid concentrate is taken with a dropper and drops put underneath the tongue, four, five, six drops put underneath the tongue. They try to hold it for a couple of minutes and then they swallow it. That's a a traditional form of allergy immunotherapy that's used for grass and tree pollen and other things. It's been done for a long time. There are products approved in the U.S. in sublingual immunotherapy for ragweed and timothy grass. And that changes your immune system like it does for oral and epicutaneous. It has fewer side effects than oral, and it's more effective than the epicutaneous. So it's kind of a midpoint between those two types of treatments. But all of them the, the effect begins to go away once you stop the treatment. So if you're treated for five years, five and a half years, six years, unless you continue to expose them to peanut in some way, it begins to wear off. It doesn't wear off as fast as people thought. Uh, Dr. Kim and others have done studies here recently that have showed the decay in that protection, and it's longer than people thought. But it will dissipate over time unless you continue to allow them, what I think of, to see the peanut in some way. We're not asking them to ingest peanuts, but it gives them a level of protection that they're accidentally not going to eat six peanuts. Because that's the fear. 
right. the fear is is that you go to somebody's house and they have peanuts in somehow or another right. and unbeknownst to the individual they're eating peanuts and they don't know about it. It's not an effort to allow individuals to eat peanuts again no. or for the first time. It's an effort to protect them of a catastrophic adverse moment. Yes. So one of the interesting things to digress a minute that I think I've learned personally in this for 20 years is that when we started, a lot of us started doing this together, we did it to try to make the disease go away. That's like what you want to do. You you give them a treatment. And Cure it. Right. You make that the C word, you make it go away. Right. And what we quickly realized, like literally the first year, and the parents didn't really care about that. What they wanted was that protection. And they'll do a lot to raise that threshold so their child won't have an accidental reaction. They didn't really care that their child had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but they did care that there was that threshold. And so it really changed ours and a lot of people's approach to the therapy because those are really different goals. Right. So if you're a person, a parent listening to this discussion and you have not had the opportunity of uh, immunotherapy and you're reasonably concerned that your child has a peanut allergy, what did, what do you do to make sure, to the best of your ability, that you protect your child? Can't I, keep them in a bubble. Right. I, the, the things that we might talk about with a family are dependent on their child, if they're two or three or seven or eight or 10 or 11 or high school or college. Each discussion in that kind of age range I talked about vary depending on what the child and the ownership they can take. Like I had discussions in clinic this week with two young adolescents. At that point, they really can begin to know and own the disease. And when they go out to eat, they're saying, I'm allergic to whatever, and then they can help. And the more they do that, the more comfortable they are and the more comfortable their parents are. So the, the big thing to understand in this for a family is that you have to ingest the food to have a serious life-threatening reaction. It's not smelling it. It's not touching it. It's not eating next to somebody at school or a ball game or walking in five guys. The child that's peanut allergic doesn't like to smell it. They intuitively just go like, that doesn't smell good. It makes me feel bad. But that's not going to cause a life-threatening reaction. You have to eat the food. It may only be, like I said, a quarter or a third or a hundredth of a peanut. It doesn't take a lot, but you have to eat it before you're going to have a really bad reaction. That's the biggest thing for a family to understand. The worry of a parent also would be, I have one child with a food allergy, a peanut allergy. What are the chances of another child, a sibling, mm-hmm. now being at risk? 100%, 5%? No, it's, it's less than the majority of them are really at risk. And you can tell relatively early in life if the new sibling has atopic dermatitis, they have asthma, they have other allergic disease, they're more likely to have peanut allergy. If they're, they don't, you know, the first couple of years of life have no atopic dermatitis, they don't have any other allergic symptoms, the likelihood of them having peanut allergy is pretty small. Do you introduce peanuts to a sibling uh, slowly just to make sure this isn't a problem? Are there guidelines for that? There are guidelines. It's a fascinating history that I've seen in my lifetime. When I grew up in the field, then the advice and the guidelines based on animal studies at that point told us as pediatricians to help people avoid the food. So the guidelines said avoid milk for a year, eggs for two years, and peanuts, tree nuts, things like that for three years. And I was around when people developed the guidelines. They were extrapolated, as I said, from animal data. 
people did that for a few decades, and then this change in prevalence happened, and people then began to study that and the opposite, which was introduction of those allergenic foods in the first four to six months of life. A landmark study was done about three years ago in London, and the guidelines internationally have changed now. So if you have a child who's not allergic to anything else, no allergic family history, give them peanut butter, not peanuts, at four to six months. If you have a child that's from a family that has allergic disease, unless they're having other, like atopic dermatitis, they have no risk factor, then give them peanut butter at four to six months. And then the last one would be from a family that has another peanut allergic child, or they have significant atopic dermatitis, and they could be tested with either a skin test or a blood test. And if it's negative, then you give them peanut butter. All three of those, once you introduce peanut butter in their diet, they're not going to develop peanut allergy later on. And it doesn't make any difference which kind of peanut butter no, it preserves. Peanut butter is peanut butter. Right. Peanut butter. Right. The only the, the interesting thing about that is that there are differences in the peanut oils, and this may be more than you want to know at this point, but it is important for families. Uh, the reason is that Chick-fil-A, one of our favorite places to eat, uses peanut oil to cook in. And so for a family that is equated to peanuts, but the peanut oil that's used by Chick-fil-A is actually heat processed, so all the protein's gone, and you can't have a reaction unless there's protein there. If you go to Carborough to the health food store, and they make peanut butter by grinding up peanuts in a mortar and pestle, then the protein will leach into the oil, so it's cold-pressed. But any commercial peanut oil does not have protein in it. And it's an important thing for families to understand that. So the cold-pressed variety, yeah. is that a risk or not a risk? Yes. No, it has protein in it, and you can react to it. So it but does make a difference how the peanut oil is, is made. Yes. Uh, heat, killed, or cold-pressed are very different. Yes. Huh, that's an interesting, interesting difference. So where's the research actually headed here? What, in your best of optimistic moments, where where are you headed? I think uh, three big things. One would be a treatment that would give families that comfort level that their child has some protection from an accidental reaction because that's really their main anxiety about all of this. And a treatment that has fewer side effects than what we have now. And a treatment that you can continue to expose them to the treatment, but it's not really a daily treatment like everything is right now. So that's the first part is to try to change the treatment from where we are right now. The second part would be, how do we understand the mechanism of the treatment that would allow us to do something different a generation and two generations from now? Uh, any study that you do, as you well know, if you design it appropriately, whatever answer you get is really good because it informs your next study. And if it's a result that's not as positive as you want, if you do the right mechanistic studies, laboratory studies with it, you'll know why and you can do something better the next time. And then the third area would be how do you identify a peanut allergic patient that really is at risk for life-threatening disease? Not everybody is. Uh, it's a small, really, really small percentage of children that it will have a life-threatening reaction. And right now, we can't tell that person from the next one. So everybody lives in fear of an accidental severe reaction, but the chances, even in all the peanut allergic kids, particularly those in the first few years of school or less, is really, really, really small. It's, again, interesting to think back about the few decades of trying to think about a therapy with families and that dichotomy of what I talked about earlier, what they want and what we thought they would want. I think that most families now have to 
understand the, I think of it as a situation of equipoise. We have some treatments that will become available in the next three or four years. The oral immunotherapy is in phase three studies and likely will be approved. The epicutaneous we talked about is in phase three will likely be approved. But if you're a parent of a child of a five-year-old who has peanut allergy, your child goes a year, year and a half before they have an axonal reaction. They don't have symptoms every day, but you live in some fear concern they're going to. If you put them on treatment, both of those treatments I talked about have side effects and you have to do something every day. If you're giving them oral immunotherapy, they're having hives or maybe have wheezing sometimes. Not life-threatening, but you're giving them protection from an event that doesn't happen very much. So you have to think about like what's your really goal out of thinking that they need treatment. And it's an important thing. I think what will happen as treatments are approved, it will be an individual parent, family, child discussion. So what are they most concerned about and what's the likelihood of treatment or no treatment helping address those concerns? Is there research on the question other than in Eastern Europe with a cow in the kitchen? Is there an effort to, to determine what you need to expose your infant to to really decrease the possibility of allergic symptoms? Uh, there are relatively good studies throughout the world. There's some better ones in the U.S. being done in rural Wisconsin, uh, some in Australia, to try to identify what are the factors that might play a part in decreasing the likelihood of that child developing allergic disease and looking at other factors. But again, they're, they really take you know, decades to play out because you need to look at the outcome, and it's not just a year or two-year outcome. So for now, everybody should bring a cow into their into their kitchen. Right. For the kids. For the kids, exactly. If you are watching uh, your child who's having a, a food allergy, in this case a peanut allergy, what, what should you do? So the types of symptoms that a child will have from a peanut allergic reaction are skin, GI, and respiratory. And the skin symptoms are hives or itchy rash. GI symptoms are vomiting, really severe abdominal pain. And the respiratory symptoms are my throat feels funny, they start to wheeze, uh, cough will be part of that. So that's the constellation of symptoms. And each of us that take care of food allergic patients, peanut allergy, tell them a little bit different than what I'm gonna say, but it's the same general category. If you eat something and you feel like it has peanuts in it, the parent does or the child does, then, and they have a hive or two on their face, they'll take the antihistamine. If they have symptoms really from their chin, throat down, so my throat hurts, they start wheezing, coughing, hives all over, they start to have vomiting, they need to take their epinephrine and then their antihistamine and go see medical care right away. They don't need to wait at home for it. There's some that might suggest if the child eats something and you know, you know it has peanuts, that they get epinephrine immediately, uh, I wouldn't do that. I think you need to wait to see, because sometimes you'll suspect that it's there and it's not really there. But really, if you have symptoms from your chin, throat down, then that can be life-threatening, and you take the epinephrine in histamines and go see the doctor. So practically, it's an EpiPen or an injectable form of epinephrine. Yes. And uh, it's an antihistamine like Benadryl, for example, yes. being probably the most common. But the other message is not if you have two systems, skin, respiratory, skin, GI, you probably need to, to take the epinephrine and, and go to an emergency room. Yes. It, it's interesting. 
in that most of us feel like that the skin symptoms are a harbinger of like something bad and um, probably 75-80% of, of the life and interactions do not have skin symptoms. They're respiratory symptoms and that's what the child, the adult will have a life ending reaction from is basically an asthma reaction. So respiratory symptoms alone, chin down as you described. Yeah, totally Time is. to take your epinephrine and I, go to the emergency room. Yeah. Uh, if you are going to give advice for a trustworthy source of information on the web, any any thoughts? Yeah, there are two sites that I would recommend. Uh, one is, I digress a second, if you Google peanut allergy, you'll get a million hits. And for a family that's not been seen and given good information, then it will be uh, really, really scary to them, and they'll get a lot of misinformation. The two sites that I would recommend, there's one from a lay organization called FAIR, Food Allergy Research and Education, and that website is foodallergy.org. And then the UNC website for the Food Allergy UNC Food Allergy Initiative, both of those are good. The FAIR site has everything from how to, how to diagnose to recipes for families. The UNC website is about the studies that are being done here and other places, but both of them are good. Uh, thanks, Dr. Burks, for this wonderful uh, amount of information. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. And if you enjoy this series, you can subscribe to The Chair's Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. In our next episode, we welcome Dr. Scott Cummins and have a discussion on meat allergy or alpha-gal allergy. Thanks so much.